appreciate it. And uh, church, it is so good to be back with you. Uh, we have missed these times in particular to gather as a body, to worship, to be encouraged with one another. And in fact, our Brazil team missed it so much last week that on the bus ride to the airport, we had our own little mini worship service. We took time to pray, we took time to sing, we took time to read God's word. And so we wanted, to, we worshiped with you in spirit. Now, in body as well. So we're glad to be back with you. We're going to be continuing in our series in the book of Ephesians. So if you want to grab your Bibles, we'll be flipping over, over to chapter 5, specifically looking at verses 7 through 21. Now, as we get started, you may see more information on the slides than you're able to write down. Uh, there's a lot packed in these verses. And let me just encourage you not to be worried about trying to get every single word on your phone or on a piece of paper. Write down what God's uh, bringing to your mind, what's standing out to you, what he's speaking to you through, because ultimately that's going to be what you take with you. Before we jump into verses 7 through 21, uh, we need to actually look back at what's the foundation for this passage. It's actually the first verse that Pastor Bill preached on last week in uh, chapter 5, verse 1. It says, therefore, be imitators of God. That is the foundation from which the rest of this passage stems from. And so I want us to filter through that lens as we read, because ultimately, this is what you and I were made for. More so than for being a part of your family, for being in your career, for anything else in life, you and I were made to be imitators of our God. So with that foundation in mind, let's go to verse 7. It says, therefore, do not become partners with them. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of the light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore, it says, awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Look carefully, then, how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Amen. May God bless the reading and study of his word. As we look at this passage, uh, we see the very first word is therefore. Now, by now, we as a church have learned whenever we see the word therefore, we have to ask, what is it there for? That's right. All right, you guys are catching on. Good job. 
But that is really important because it ties in the previous passage where we learn that the wrath of God stands against the sons and daughters of disobedience. And we learn what is proper for the saints of God to interact with and what is not proper for them to interact with. As we look at this passage, we see that we don't want the wrath of God to stand upon us, right? That is the last thing that we want coming upon us. And so it says, therefore, in light of that, do not become partners with them, the sons and daughters of disobedience. But what does this mean? This phrase, do not become partners with them. Because depending on our interpretation, there can be varied ideas of how this fleshes out. What this means at its core is that we do not participate in the sinful actions that sons and daughters of disobedience are willing to participate in. There are many other things that this can refer to, but at the core, that is what this is referring to. Do not become partners in the acts of disobedience that non-believers are committing. So much so that we'd be willing to even walk through an awkward moment to remove ourselves from the very things that others may be participating in. Because we have a new mindset. We have a new heart. We have a new spirit. And we would say, I can't in good conscience participate in those things because I want to please my God more so than I want to please man. But what this doesn't mean, this is really important to note, is that we're supposed to seclude ourselves in a holy huddle and avoid ever interacting with the sons and daughters of disobedience. If that was the case, and Christians did that for hundreds of years, you and I and every person in this room probably would never have heard the gospel of Jesus. Instead, God calls us to go to the sons and daughters of disobedience, to rescue the brokenhearted, to share that life is available for them in Jesus Christ, but to not partner in with the sinful actions that they may be committing. Because at one point in time, it says, you also were without Christ. Continue on. At one time, you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Those are some strong statements. One negative, one positive. You were darkness. Not like darkness, were darkness. Before Christ. It makes me think of Isaiah 64, verse 6, where it says, all our righteous acts are like filthy rags. Imagine that. Every good word you've ever spoken, every kind thought you gave, every generous act, put that all together without Christ, it's like something you would never want to touch your hand. But what changes? It says, you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. When Christ intervenes, there is a categorical change. No longer are you defined by your mistakes, by your sin, by the ways you rebelled against God. Now you're defined by Christ and his love and his obedience and his holiness. You are light in the Lord. My brothers and sisters, if you're struggling with that today, you've surrendered your life to Christ, but you're struggling with how does God see me? He sees you as light. And that is something we can take hope in. But the question is, are you? 
Are you light in the Lord? Have you surrendered to Christ? Have you become unpartnered with the sons and daughters of disobedience, with the works of darkness? If you want that today, you can do that in your seat right now. You don't have to wait to pray afterwards with me or one of our prayer team members up front. You can do that right now saying, Jesus, I don't want to be partnered with the works of darkness anymore. I want you. If you do that, just make sure to talk with us afterwards. We want to care for you, love you, help you, support you, encourage you. But you can do that right now. Just say, Jesus, I repent of my ways and I want you. Now, when we do that, it says that we are called to walk as children of light. Continuing in verse 9, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. It says we're going to pursue that which is good, right, and true. But how do we know what that is? There's a lot of different opinions as to what's good and right and true in our day and age, right? Well, thankfully, God doesn't make it complicated. The way we understand it is by meditating on this word, his word, day and night. Now, notice what I didn't say. I didn't say read. I said meditate. Oftentimes, I think we can short-circuit the process by thinking that reading is enough, whereas meditating means that we are pondering, discussing, applying, praying through, wrestling with, thinking about, letting it invade every part of our lives. But I think more times than not, we might be guilty of just saying, all right, cool. I checked off my Bible reading for the day. I don't have to think about that again till tomorrow. Oh, my brothers and sisters, that is not the way that we begin to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. It's by meditating on his word, allowing this to be the thing that we thirst for. Like the song said, those who thirst for righteousness, hunger and thirst, do we hunger and thirst? Or is it something that simply acts as a tack to our checklist. Let me encourage you. I've been there. It's not worth it, though. Pursue it. Meditate on it. Give your life to it. But the thing is, even if we know the word backwards and forwards, we must still act upon it, right? We could know what is pleasing to the Lord and yet choose to rebel against it. Parents, you know this well. Your children know exactly what pleases you, right? They know the buttons that they can push that would displease you. And so each day is a little bit of a question. Are they going to move in the way in which you would direct them, in the ways that you've asked them probably a thousand times? Or is it going to be choosing to push those buttons, to see how far they can stretch your patience? Well, Likewise, we can know what the Lord desires of us and yet choose to rebel against it. And that's why verse 11 says, take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness. Take no part, but instead expose them. This can get to be a tricky, tricky thing to apply. How do we expose the works of darkness? How do we do that well? Well, the first way that we're to do that is to show the world something undeniably 
different. Might not be what you initially thought, but by showing the world something undeniably different, there is going to be a natural comparison that the world makes between themselves and you. And they're going to see the contrast. They're going to say, wait a second, they love their enemies? I, I, I could wish my enemies to go away forever. They, they don't seek revenge? Oh, well, revenge is my second hand. They, they don't seek to uh, pursue the same things that I have in mind? They don't, give, uh, they don't give in to materialism? They give generously? That's going to be noticed. And so are we seeking to be undeniably supernaturally different? Or are we just a spin off of the current culture around us? The second way that we're called to expose the unfruitful works of darkness might be uh, one of those that comes to your mind more quickly, and that's called, we're called to confront. We're called to confront the things that are not of God, but particularly in the spheres of influence that God has stewarded us with. It's not our job to be the sin police for every elected official, every celebrity, every public sphere, but it is definitely our job to seek to lovingly confront sin in our family, in our close friends, in our fellow believers. That is where we are called to expose the unfruitful works of darkness because those don't belong there. It's not proper for the saints, as we read in the previous passage, but Scripture says we must always confront while speaking the truth in love. If you do one without the other, you're in error. If we don't speak the truth, we're in error. If we don't speak the truth in love, we're in error. God calls us to both, just like he shows through his own character. But there's also a strategy that we're not supposed to use. You see that in verse 12? It says, for it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. What this phrase means is that there are certain sins, there are certain actions, there are certain unfruitful works of darkness that should be kept and, and should be exposed in a general manner rather than explicitly laid out for everybody to hear. Some of those are in the previous passage that Pastor Bill Mitchell talked about last week. You think about covetousness, or sexual immorality. Those are sins in which I would advocate we're to expose in a general manner. As soon as you begin to talk about how gaudy that house is or how much material somebody has, you might actually end up tempting the very person that you're seeking to shield from temptation. Or when you talk about sexual immorality and the acts that people are committing, the things that they're doing, you might tempt the very people that you're seeking to protect. And so my brothers and sisters, let me encourage you to have discernment. Is this leading to a helpful awareness or are we getting to the place where we're talking so explicitly that it leads to temptation for the very people we're trying to protect? Now, there's one more way that we're called to expose the unfruitful works of darkness. There's probably more than that as well. But one of the most powerful ways that we can do this is by confessing when the unfruitful works of darkness are in us. 
Well, that gets personal real quick, doesn't it? And I believe that verses 13 and 14 call us to this. Let's read them. It says, when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore, it says, awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. This verse, in verse 14, says that whatever is exposed by the light becomes light. Isn't that an interesting phrase? But think about it when you look at verse 8 and what we already described. Once you were darkness, but when Christ shines on a sinner, then they become light in the Lord. That's because when Christ shines upon us, he changes the uh, sinful desires that we had where we interacted with a good gift that he gave, he changes those sinful desires to be instead pure desires, utilizing the very same things that we interacted with before. He changes our desires and shows us it's worth it to confess any work of darkness because when we put it in the light, it becomes light. There was a point in the time in my life, though, where I did not believe this was true. I thought it was much better to try to change sinful habits in my life on my own power. You know, God, I've got God. Like, what more do I need? God's the one who has all the power in the world. I just need to rely upon him and I'm good to go. I'll just try harder and harder and harder, get a little better, a little better, a little better. And one day it'll be in the past. That wasn't the only motivation though, if I'm honest. As I had sinful habits in my life, I also was afraid. I was afraid of, if I open up about this, that I'd be rejected in one way, shape, or form by others. I'd be condemned. How could you possibly be wrestling with that? Or I'd experience isolation, that I'd be the only one who opens up and everybody else has it together. I believed that lie for five years. Five years, I tried on my own strength again and again and again, and I would get to the same place where I would be caught up in excusing myself, saying, well, God's fine with this this time around, or where I got so warped that I believed I needed to be clean, I needed to be pure long enough, and then, only then, God would welcome me back into his presence. I got to the place where I hated myself, where I hated the sin, and I became bitter towards God because it wasn't working. Like, God, I want this out of my life. Why won't you take it? Eventually, I got desperate enough to where the commands of Scripture actually hit my heart. And I decided, okay, I'm going to try this. I'm going to open up to some people. And I found a group of men that I could share with. I remember the fear that I felt in that moment, the, the embarrassment as I shared how uh, long it's been since I've opened up about this, uh, the potential stress and worry, what's going to happen. But what I found wasn't rejection. I found an embrace. I didn't find condemnation. I found reminders of the gospel that I had forgotten. I didn't find isolation where I was kicked to the curb and 
put on my own, I found brotherhood. And it changed me forever. So much so that I saw God not as a God who waits for us to clean up our act and then welcomes us in his presence, but a God who embraces us in the midst of our sin and through his love changes the strongholds of darkness in us. Confession, my brothers and sisters, shouldn't be the exception in our spheres, in our groups, in our families. It should be the norm, right? What better place to open up about the things you're wrestling with than a spiritual family that's charged by God himself to care for you? And that's why it's so important, as Carl said, to be committed to a group. Because then you get to experience that in real time. You get those opportunities to open up. And in fact, we believe in this so much that we invited a group of men to go through a process with us for three months called Redeemed that was specifically geared at fostering these conversations, giving spaces in which confession could actually occur, specifically in the realm of sexual immorality. And you know what? Men were transformed. They were completely changed. They went from isolation and fighting on their own and trying to do their own thing into community, into freedom, into love, into redemption. And so we're actually going to be providing these groups for both men and women this fall. If this is something that you want to look at or you're interested in, there's plenty of information on the app that you can find about learning more and registering, but we can't wait to see what God's going to do through this process because we believe, not just in that subject, but in every subject, God transforms us when we actually confess our sins authentically and ask for loving accountability from our brothers and sisters. Amen? And so we see, continuing in our passage, when the light of Christ shines on us, as it says at the end of verse 14, we are going to be compelled to evaluate our spiritual walk on a regular basis. And this is what verses 15 through 17 point to. Let's read them together. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Look carefully how you walk, Brothers and sisters, being imitators of God does not occur with a haphazard approach. And you, can, you know that in so many other subjects of life. Say you want to get good at any hobby, anything in your job, anything in parenting. It doesn't happen with a haphazard approach where, all right, let me just get through this work week. Let me just get through this day of parenting. Let me just get through this semester of school and slowly but surely, you know what? I'm going to become more like Jesus. No. It requires an intentional, laser-focused commitment and process. Otherwise, being imitators of God, we're going to look more like a, um, we're going to look more like the world rather than an imitator of God. So are we evaluating our walk carefully or is it something that we just kind of 
go through the motions day by day. Because it says we're called in verse 16 to make the best use of the time. Think about that. Not just any use of the time, the best use of the time. Because the days are evil. Believe it or not, whether you're close to my age or whether you're far from my age, in the blink of an eye, we're going to come to our last day. And we're going to stand before God. And we're going to give an account for how we used the time he gave us on this earth. What will we, what will be evident as a result of the time that we used? Will it be for the things that God prioritizes or will it be just, again, like everything the world prioritizes? Are we living for eternity? Are we living for the temporary? The time is short. Because it says in verse 17, if we do not make the best use of the time, it implies we'll be pretty foolish. But we don't have to be. We can understand what the will of the Lord is. I've been in many conversations with individuals who experience confusion about the will of the Lord. And oftentimes, it can be a confusing subject if we focus on the wrong part of the subject. Because we oftentimes get caught up with God's unknown will rather than God's known will. God does not make it difficult for us to understand his will. He's written over a thousand pages about it. And so this is God's known will. The word of God is the will of God. And so just like we looked in the previous part of our passage, do we know it? Backwards, forwards. Because if we do, then we are going to understand that all scripture, as it says in 2 Timothy, is God-breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, and training in righteousness. And then we'll see that, well, God's mission for the world, that's clear. He's calling us to make disciples of all nations. God's mission for me, that's clear as well. He calls me to abide in him, John 15, 5. He who abides in me will bear much fruit. So is our focus on God's known will, or are we oftentimes just caught up in his unknown will? Do I take this job or that job? Do I take this house or that house? Do I live here or there? Is it this opportunity or that opportunity? These friends or those friends? Which aren't bad questions to ask. Let me just be clear about that. Don't want to guilt you over those questions. They're good questions to ask, but they are not the end-all, be-all. If we seek to follow God's known will, we're seeking to obey his commands, seeking to glorify his name, seeking to honor him, and we make a decision here, my brothers and sisters, you can't thwart God's will. I can't thwart God's will. His will will be done. And so we simply are called to make a decision and trust. Trust in his plan. Trust in his guidance. And seek to align with what he calls us to in his known will. So, continuing on, it says... Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery. Well, that's a clear understanding of God's known will. Do not get drunk with wine. But it doesn't say that drinking wine is a sin. Let's be very clear about that. Uh, now, even uh, later in Paul's writings, he tells Timothy to drink a little bit of wine to help with his stomach ailment. 
But he makes a very strong statement here. He says, do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery. It's to have no place in our lives whatsoever. Instead of embracing the spirit of drunkenness, he calls us to embrace the spirit of holiness. Be filled with the Holy Spirit. But what does this mean? Because this also can be a confusing phrase if we're not looking at it carefully. Being filled with the Spirit means that we are controlled by the Spirit. Let me say that again. Being filled with the Spirit means that we are controlled by the Spirit. Not being controlled by a different substance or an emotion or somebody else. We are controlled by the Spirit. But the natural question that that, that, that brings up is, how do I know if I'm being controlled by the Spirit? What are some evidences of that? Well, what does the Holy Spirit bring? He brings a lot of things, including in Galatians, you think of the fruit of the Spirit. But here are four things throughout Scripture that the Holy Spirit brings. He brings about conviction. Conviction means that, he, that, that I am more and more aware of the sin in my life. I have an understanding of how I've rebelled against God. He brings conviction. He brings faith. Not just faith as in trusting God, trusting his promises cognitively, but also acting them out in action. He brings about power. Well, we saw this clearly on our missions trip in Brazil. People who were afraid to share the gospel, the Holy Spirit brought life to them, boldness, confidence, and they shared in a way that they probably never would have expected before. And then we see also that the Holy Spirit brings wisdom as we seek to make wise choices. And so a question we need to ask is, are these increasing in our life? Is godly wisdom, godly power, godly faith, godly conviction increasing in our lives, or is it decreasing? Now, you might say, Bill, I love that. That's a great definition. So how do I actually pursue it? You're all describing what I should be experiencing, but how do I pursue it? Well, it's oftentimes in similar ways that we pursue sanctification and all the other things that God has called us to. We're called to pray. And the way in which we pray is that we say, Holy Spirit, I want to surrender to you. I want to be controlled by you. I don't want to be controlled by my own emotions, my own desires, my own thoughts. I want to be controlled by you. We're called to exercise faith. As we said, faith is not just cognitively understanding God's promises and believing them. It's actually demonstrating that through action day by day. And then thirdly, we are called to be led, as it says in Galatians 5.18, where we listen for the Holy Spirit's promptings. We don't just run our own way. We, we discern, Lord, what do you want me to do in this circumstance? In fact, just earlier this week, on Monday, I was having a conversation with um, one of our neighbors, and I wanted to get back into my house. This guy was running his mouth, just keeping me, just not allowing me to get back into my home, wanted to talk about football. I'm like, okay, I love to talk about football, but not right now, because I had a lot to get back to after being back from Brazil, but I felt the Holy Spirit prompt me in saying, wait, stay in this conversation a little bit. And he said one phrase that allowed me to ask 
and in, uh, hopefully an insightful question. He allowed me to ask a deeper question, to, to prod a little bit as to what he described. And long story short, he shared that he was struggling, that he felt broken, that he longed for God to change his circumstances. I got to share the gospel with him. I got to pray over him. I got to lay my hands upon him. And I would have missed all of that if I just said, I'm going back in my house. Are we listening for the Spirit's promptings? Or are we just seeking to go our own way? Now, last thing on the Holy Spirit, although you guys shouldn't be tired of the Holy Spirit. He's incredible. So we can keep talking about him for days. What actions come as a result of being filled by the Spirit? That is what the rest of our passage talks about in verses 18 through 21. Let's read it. But be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Three ways we see in this passage actions that are a result of being filled by the Spirit. The first is singing songs of praise. And anybody who knows me for long enough knows this holds a special place in my heart. There's few things that I love doing more than singing songs of praise to our God. Because God made music in such a way that it does something to us that I think is unlike many other things in this world. It touches us in a way. It gets into our emotions and our heart and activates all of our body at once in worship to our King. But the question here is, well, what's the focus of our worship? Psalms, hymns, spiritual songs, there's lots of different songs that we could use to sing, but it says singing and making melody to the Lord. And so as we just sang just about 20 minutes ago, was your focus on the Lord? Or was our focus on the people around us, on whether I like this song or not, on how I'm feeling this morning, or on what's coming after church? The point as we sing is to make melody to the Lord. We don't worship, and Pastor Bill has shared this in the past too, but I love it, it's such a good comparison. The team up here, we don't worship for you as the audience. We worship for the audience of one, to the Lord, the one who looks upon every one of us and will ask, what's the state of your heart? And that's the second part, to the Lord with your heart. Is it something that we just Sing because we know, all right, this is just what I'm supposed to do. This is, I just know this song. Or is it that, God, I want to give you as much praise as I can possibly give because you have been so good to me? Our king is glorious, and he is worthy of great praise from us. But not just praise, he's also worthy of our thanks, Oftentimes that's in songs, but it specifically says it here, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Those who are filled with the Spirit will give thanks in all circumstances. That's a hard one. And it's not just, this isn't the only place that it says it. In 1 Thessalonians 5.18, it says give thanks in all circumstances. 
But it's easy to give thanks to God when we have uh, great AC, which was a question mark earlier today, <laughs> or uh, when we have comfortable chairs, or when we're, things are going well. But do we give thanks to God in the difficult times? And some of you may be very familiar with this, but some of you might say, Bill, how in the world am I supposed to give thanks to God when tragedy hits? Scripture is so helpful for us in this moment. Romans 8, 28, many of you know it by heart. It says, God works all things to the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. All things. Do we believe that? And if we don't believe that, well, there's another passage that'll help us with that. It actually teases it out. Romans 5, verses 3 through 5, it says that we rejoice in our sufferings because suffering produces perseverance, and perseverance, character, and character, hope. Those are characteristics of Christ. And so where the rubber meets the road is, do we want a comfortable life one that is free of pain and suffering? Or do we want to be more like Jesus? Because Jesus, God says that through suffering, we become more like Jesus. And that is the prize that is worth eternity, not a comfortable life for 80 years. So let's give thanks because God is making us more like himself even through our sufferings. And then lastly, we see we're called to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. We will not submit to one another if we do not submit to Christ first, brothers and sisters. And so are we? Are we submitting to Christ? Are we giving up of our dreams, of our agenda, of our families, of our finances to him? And only through that will we then submit to one another. But all of this, those last three words I want you to highlight, Reverence for Christ. If we don't have the reverence, then all of this can be put to the side. Do we have a reverence for our king who first showed us the way of submission as he submitted to the will of the Father and gave his life, gave his blood, gave his body so that we might be saved from our sins? That's our example. And let us let us have reverence for the king who is willing to do the very thing that none of us would have been willing to do. He lived a perfect life, and yet he died the death that sinners deserve. None of us would have done that, and yet he did it for us. So the question is not, do we love God? Our question is, do we love God enough to walk like him? Do we have such reverence for God that you are willing to walk like him, because you and I have been called to be imitators of our God. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together.